0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey Jim!
1: Hey! (laughs) Good
2: to see you again!
1: Good to see you again. I had a senior moment. I I was just clicking everywhere. And I finally saw this, the Zoom button. So, so <laughs> That's what I do. I just, I just hit a bunch of buttons. Found them with my fist. <laughs> I started to panic. I wonder if I might have to call in. How you doing, oh. Janice?
2: I am good. Has it been about a month since we met up?
0: Is that about right?
1: All I can think of is April. I can't think of a day. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know either. Well,
0: it seems like a long time. I miss you all.
1: Well, yeah, I missed you guys. Hey, there's Tim.
2: Hey, good to see you. I can see you. you're not in a dark dungeon. My wife discovered she got to mess around with my computer. She realized I had it set on the darkest setting. <laughs> it was just a matter of moving the set. I got a light back here, but I don't even think I need uh, the light. So I thought, you, I thought you had a black beard, not a white beard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I, was, I was pretty dark. I was in the dark, but now yeah, I've, I've seen cool. the light. <laughs> it's been a while
3: the last course i'm pretty sure you said some disparaging things about richard roar so i didn't think i could look you in the face again oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> right don't you remember you said some bad things and i thought oh boy i can never forgive paul for that oh no <laughs> are you a are you a roar fan oh i like so i do i like some of his stuff but I, I can't i can't remember what it was but i know
2: you you took him out to the woodshed I haven't read him enough to, I know a lot of people like him. And and in a sense, that's, I know a lot of young people like him. Hey, if it uh, preserves your faith, you know, that may be. (laughs) Hey, is that Matt? Holy Matt. Hey Matt. How are you? Good, Matt.
4: You've got a beard. Letting the hair grow out and. You've gone
3: full orthodox.
4: (laughs) Full orthodox. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Paul, Paul's gone full orthodox. Look at him.
2: Hey, this is my trimmed look.
4: Yeah, I was pressure washing my fence. It was a huge job. You people that live, you know, that elite lifestyle, you got, oh,
2: you got yeah, all that property
4: wow. to keep up. Yeah,
2: look at that. Yeah, you know, uh, I can, I can testify to Matt's uh, great carpentry skills. About 15 years ago, he started a paint job. For me, and I still got the tape up, waiting for him to finish. <laughs>
4: <laughs> that is the, that is pathetic. Oh, there's uh, David.
2: It must be cooler in Indiana, David. Oh, my air conditioning's
5: not working, so I'm outside. Uh, oh, no. terrible! Uh, the ten thousand dollars that I spent last year for that new unit, and it's not working.
4: That is terrible.
2: Uh, can everybody introduce themselves? And Jim, you're up in my left-hand corner. Can you uh, Can you start? Hello, everybody. My name's Jim.
1: I was with Paul in his last course, The Atonement. Stretched some of my brain cells, for sure. And while they were stretched, I thought, well, I better keep going before they shrink again. <laughs> I'm glad we're uh, starting another hike, so to speak.
0: My name's Janice. I was also in the last class, and enjoyed it immensely so I'm eager to continue.
1: And
3: then uh, Tim. I, I'm the token Canadian. Well me and Dan are part of the Commonwealth so we're, we're, we have that in common right Dan? <laughs>
6: <laughs> That's all right. Uh,
3: yeah I'm up in Vancouver BC or just the far west coast and I think this is about my fourth course now I've done.
4: Yeah I'm excited to be here. Hi guys I'm Matt. I'm a hospice chaplain. I live in Indianapolis. I've known Paul for probably, oh, I don't know, about 15 or more years. I'm very happy to be here. I'm an Orthodox Christian by tradition, formerly Christian Church, Churches of Christ. And uh, it's really good to see everybody. Tim, it's really good to see you again, buddy. I've What's missed it? a couple classes. classes. Matt continued to be a quite a troublemaker.
2: Yeah, yeah.
4: Yeah,
5: uh,
3: I thought he'd be blocked by now. <laughs>
5: so I am uh, Dave Rawls. I am in Terre Haute, Indiana, which I straddle the, uh, the Wabash River. I guess I've been a part of, I don't know, am I a part of it or am I just a forging plowshares here? Yes, you are. You're an integral part of forging plowshares. Like a couple months ago, I got my like second certificate. I'm uh, I don't know if I'm intermediate level or where I'm at, but you finish
2: the intermediate level and you're well on the way to the uh, the uh, graduate level. Yeah, my wife asked me today when she saw, like,
5: you got a class tonight, and I'm all, yeah, well, she wants to know what group it is, and I tell her and she wants to know, uh, what do you get when you're done, and I said, I, I think, hopefully, another
2: uh, appreciation. Um, Dave, your life will be completely different when you get that certificate. <laughs> You're going to be amazed at the respect that you get and the people will just treat you completely differently. Let me just say they already are.
5: I had a review not too long ago and they said, Hey, could you dumb it down for us just a little bit? <laughs> it's,
2: my, it's my fault. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, the other Matt.
4: Uh, wishing he was the Matt with the cigar, but, yeah. um, I'm in my dining room and I just, that just get me in trouble. I think. I am. Uh, this is my first uh, class, so I'm looking forward to it. I'm from uh, Harrisonburg, Virginia, which is in the Shenandoah Valley. If you're familiar with Virginia, the western part of the state.
2: Okay. And Matt,
4: you're a lawyer
2: by trade. Uh, that I am. Yes. Okay. We need some uh, decisive input then.
7: <laughs> hey, y'all. I am Brian Sarter. This is my second class. I was here um I, I phrased it this way to Paul. He presented me with an interesting problem. I noticed that you shrunk the um, the font size down on the reading, so it <laughs>
0: <laughs> looks smaller. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot less I got, a magnifying,
7: got a magnifying glass. <laughs> um, but yes, it is fewer pages. Thank you. And <laughs> I'm in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Real glad to, to be joining y'all again.
6: Hey guys, my name's Dan. I'm living out of Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, I probably this is my, I'd say, sixth class. Super happy to be here. Super um, honoured to meet a lot of you guys before. Uh, once again, Peter, hey Matt, all of the rest of you that I've met. Uh, it's just great to, to be with you again. And Dan, you're on a citrus farm, is that right? <laughs> we, we sell wholesale fruit and vegetables. So, Domestic growers sell, and also international we import, so a lot of logistics. So all of the um, citrus growers in California will import containers of halos, mandarins, you might be familiar, and we'll import them into New Zealand and sell fresh fruit and vegetables across the country. That's what we do. So you're not actually running out and picking during the... (laughs) (laughs) No, no. We specialize in marketing and sales. very fortunate that the the growers do all the hard yards, battle the weather for conditions um we we just try to represent them as best as
3: we can they're playing the yankees so i'll be just checking in and out with the (laughs) file
2: okay yeah don't let us interrupt any of the games you know Uh, i made a proposal in the introductory reading i think in the past i have not been consistent with this understanding it was not an understanding that was presented to me i don't know if if those of you who have been through seminary or through a biblical education this may sound strange to you those that have not this may you may be wondering what in the world we're talking about but that is that very often when we think of the logos and logos theology that for several hundred years what people have meant by that Especially in the Western church, is a reference to the pre incarnate Christ. And that's almost just assumed that in some way the Logos is kind of an archetype. It has been compared to a Platonic understanding. And I have always thought that this is exactly the the Plato part of this, I've thought is exactly wrong. And that is, if I had to set John in a context, I think that it is primarily a Jewish context. So when he's referring to the Logos in the beginning of the book, are you all familiar with uh, where else that would appear? And there would be a couple of places. I mean, do you mean like in Greek philosophy? Yeah, the obvious Greek. one is in, the, in, a, in a Greek philosophical context. And so there is a kind of tradition surrounding John, maybe because of this, the logos, the prologue, that John has been in recent scholarship. If you were going to talk about the book of John uh, from Boltmann and on and even, and it's just kind of blossomed, that people have begun to talk about John as if, oh, this is the gospel that is the favorite of the Gnostics. This is exactly wrong. This is simply not the case. Charles Hill has written a, a definitive book that is kind of debunking the whole, the recent scholarship on the book of John, linking the logos to the prologue or linking the whole book, you know, that the Gnostics would maybe, proto-Gnostic is the correct term, not a full-blown Gnosticism, that they would be the ones that first embraced the book and they've said things like you know that the gospel of john was not accepted by the greater church and first of all on the on, just on its face just looking at the book i think the very point of the book is over and against this kind of greek gnostic understanding i think he is purposely using the term logos but there would be one other place that we would encounter the term Logos. So it's it's a Greek philosophical term, but we're also going to encounter its equivalent in the Old Testament.
7: Which is this just the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament and concept of the word
2: in uh, Hebrew scripture? It is there, and it's there in the, uh, actually it's in the Aramaic, uh, the Targums. That they're going to, you know, if you know what the tetragrammaton is, that is the four letters Y H W H. That in the Targums, there, you know, the traditional thing is that you did not pronounce the Tetragrammaton. That's why it's that we're not saying it. This would be the thing the Jehovah's Witness would say, Oh, that's the that's Jehovah. But we actually really have no idea how to say it, or that's Yahweh. And so in the Hebrews would Uh, come to the Tetragrammaton, they would just read Adonai. But in the Jewish Targums, they're actually going to put the equivalent, the Aramaic equivalent of Logos. This may also be what's happening in John. That is that John of the four Gospels is the most clear affirmation of the deity of Christ. Uh, When God introduces himself to Moses and,
5: or who do I tell tell Pharaoh uh, that sent me, and it's the I am passages.
2: That's it. I am that I am. Yeah. And so we think that that's actually expressed in the YHWH. And so in John, we're going to encounter, in other words, in the, in the prologue, we have the logos, which in the Aramaic scriptures or in the, in the Targums is the equivalent term. But then throughout John, we're going to encounter these I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. I am before Abraham. You know, in other words, it's a clear claim to deity. The I am statements are just, you know, some of them we don't know if it's a claim to deity or if it's just, hey, it's me but i'm guessing that whenever we encounter the i am we should we should consider that john is giving us this information he gives it to us you know uh, one of the other places is when jesus is walking on the sea of galilee and the disciples are afraid and he says fear not i am it's not clear that it's uh, it is the the claim a messianic claim or a claim for divinity but Combined then with the strong picture of the deity of Christ in John the I Am, and the Logos, I think the Logos prologue is just a way of kind of summing that up. Mm -hmm. My understanding of the Logos is in accord with Charles Hill, you know, he's kind of debunked uh, really 100 years of scholarship on the book of John, which actually goes back to F. C. Bauer. I don't know if those of you guys have done the higher critical stuff. F. C. Bauer uh, it, it was writing in German, but actually the stuff that he had done on John kind of leaked out earlier. Bauer had this whole theory, you know, that kind of became standard in New Testament scholarship, linking John with the Gnostics. I don't know why people would assign John. A kind of Gnostic role. First of all, the thing that Hill is doing is debunking and saying actually the Gnostics didn't like John, that it will be in the second century that Valentinius will pick up John. But if Valentinius is going to take, he's going to do the same thing to all of the Gospels. He's going to, uh, and John is just one of them. And it's not because that John lends itself to Gnostic thought. And so what Hill is doing is showing just the opposite. First of all, John is very much accepted by the early church. There's really uh, very little question of that. Well, let me read this statement. This is actually from John Bear describing Hill. Hill's own exhaustive and meticulous study, the Johannine corpus in the early church, has surely administered the final flogging of the twin horses, that by any academic standard should have been dead at the starting post. That is the twin theories of orthodox johannaphobia. So johannophobia you know, the, the, they're saying, oh, well, the people who were orthodox, they didn't like John, and they were rejecting John. And Hill goes through and shows that's clearly not the case, that John, when they're, they're talking about the Gospels, they're going to talk about the four Gospels. They're going to talk about the writings of John and the book of Revelation. Revelation, is maybe a, a, a more questionable, but the epistles and the gospel uh, from very early on are accepted. Now, I should slow down here. Does everybody know what we mean when we're talking about Gnosticism or the false teachers that we're encountering in John?
4: Matt? Well, there's a lot of different kinds of Gnostics. But I think that the Gnostics that Paul is is referring to would be the, you know, that they, they believed um, in, in what Paul was referring to in his introduction and chapter uh, as a dualism. You know, he uses the example of light and darkness in John, and the Gnostics would say, yeah, you know, these things are both sort of equally sort of opposing forces that are both actual, they're both real. They would divide, in Paul's writings and what he was saying in his introduction and chapters that they would they would do everything in the same way you know they would understand identity through difference is how he was putting it in the in the writings right they thought that the real truth of things was in some sort of transcend transcendent other reality but i I would think that the the bigger more important thing for what we're doing here uh that is that the, the the gnostics it comes from the word gnosis right so the word gnosis means to know Um, And for the Gnostics, they thought that the way that you knew God was through knowing truth in the abstract or maybe what you would call like first principles or what you would call you know a sort of intellectual secret and that was a big thing is that like not everybody could be Gnostics because you had to know this sort of stuff that other people either didn't know or didn't have access to right I think that Paul Axton's rendering of all this is that yeah but the way that John is going to explain what Christian Gnosis is is that we know a person so that the way that you really know Uh, what's real and what's true isn't just through an abstract knowing of different types of principles or facts or philosophies or theories or whatever, but that uh, John's going to present the word that, you know, the logos that's going to become flesh. So the way that we can talk about logos is in a lot of different ways, but I would assume that the, the, the Gnostics would say, well, yeah, we have a word too. And it's a, it's a word of knowledge. It's a secret word that not everybody has access to. Whereas John is going to say that, well, we saw him. We, you know, we touched him, we heard him, uh, you know. So they're going to talk about the way that we know God isn't in the abstract. It's not just through knowing philosophical propositions, but it's through knowing the incarnate Christ. For Saint John, is that a be- that was a better answer? I feel. Oh like. yeah, I got there. Ne- I got nervous on the first time you called me out. And I was like, I, it was like, uh, I was like uh, Cindy Brady on the, on the Brady bunch. I was just looking into the red light of the camera and I got. Scared.
0: That's right. The pressure's on.
5: I was wondering if this is the duality that uh, maybe Matt spoke of. Aren't they uh, very platonic in the sense that the body is evil, bad and and the spirit good. And so they, they, they kind of separate that, which I always kind of read that um, John chapter one. He really speaks into, uh, you know, touched him, we saw him, you know, we hung out with him, played games with him, you know, all that. And the, a, a quick observation is, is I feel like uh, Gnosticism has influenced more of the modern church today than good Christian teaching.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, I, I think the the tendency is toward a kind of Gnostic dualism. And it may express that, you know, it, it's kind of there in our atonement theory. It's there in a lot of ways. It's certainly there in the, the sense in which Calvinism has influenced. And it's influenced all of us, you know. Not not just even of those of us who may not identify as Calvinist. That's probably the atonement
4: theory that we have no i think that just let me come to the defense of the gnostics just very quickly and that is is that i think also that the gnostics you know they yearn for a better world that they saw this world as a as as created by you know what they call like a demiurge which is like an basically an evil uh creator because material for them because spirit was good matter is you know evil and they looked around they saw the fallen world that we lived in and thought well you know there must be something better than this and so they yearned for uh The transcendent the world beyond you know this world of sort of fallen time and things like that but i think that what saint john is saying is yeah but christ has come into this world to redeem you know to redeem chronos you know this world's time instead of um sort of us going somewhere else it was like christ came here to redeem this world and to bring a world and a knowledge to us a kingdom
2: yeah and and that's their Depending on how we read the prologue, I think that's... In other words, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Obviously, it's a reference to Genesis, the creation story. But here, the Word became flesh. In other words, if you were going to do something anti-Platonic, it would be that phrase, and the Word became flesh. Because in a Platonic understanding... You can't have the Word was God and the Word became flesh. That's, that undoes a Platonic world.
1: This is one of those concepts that sort of like scraping paint just have to keep going over and over, and it's see- seeping in one of your paragraphs in your introduction. There's no part of Christian enterprise that is not affected by how we conceive the Logos as it is the abstraction of the Logos conceived as a existent Christ And reduced to something like a first principle, which accounts for or accords with the mystification of sin, the turn to apologetics, the focus on an abstract atonement theory, the privilege of law, the turn to nominalism, and the basic tenor of Western theology. You know, that's a huge That's a huge statement, yeah. That's a huge chunk of coin.
4: All that stuff that Jim was just describing, it sounded like it was all salvation by knowing something, right? But if you understand the right things, if you know the right, so you can plug this into a lot of our theology today, right? It's like, as long as you know the right stuff to believe, as long as you have that knowledge, it's salvific, right? But what John is going to say is that, you know, in in the claim that he's going to make in his gospel, Jesus says, well, the one who loves me keeps my commandments. You know, so there's a whole different way of, in other words, it's an embodied sort of knowing. It's love. It's works of love. It's, it's work. You know, it's mercy. This I think what Paul is playing with here is two whole ideas of how we know truly know. Right? Do we know by being able to assent to the right sorts of doctrines and the right sorts of like? Yeah, that stuff is really important. But I think that what Paul was trying to bring out, or what he will try to bring out, is that Christian theology says that well, God, you know, came to earth and was righteous. You know, he did, he, he, he lived a life worthy of God through, you know, acts of love and and things like this. And so how do we, how do we truly know God? It's through a person and it's through an imitation of a person. Um, And it's not just the, you know, ascent mentally ascending or assenting, sorry, to certain truths that maybe other people don't know. You know, it's not that Christians are just saying, Hey, we know, we know some stuff that nobody else knows. And if you know the same stuff that we know, then you can be saved too. What, right, that I think that what John is saying is is that God has been incarnate, you know, become incarnate, and that we have to actually follow Him, and that's how we that's how we understand uh, and become something. Well, for for John, he says the you know gods, right? That you shall become as gods. Yeah. Um,
3: that's the message, from Paul. Paul told me that my salvation was dependent on taking this course. Yes, yeah, that's right. You
4: won't know otherwise, right? I mean, you have to know that Jesus is the Christ and things like this. You have to know that salvation is through the church. So it's not to say that, you know, that knowledge isn't important or something like that. But I think that the whole thing that Paul is doing there in this introduction in first chapter is to talk about the incarnation and that God became a body that God became right. That or I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but that God, you know, uh, was incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth and he walked among us and he, he tells us to walk as he walked and things like this. And that that's how we, when we walk this thing out, we actually under, truly understand it.
2: Yeah. That we encounter God in Christ. That's the simple thing, but we have to keep wrapping our head around that to say all that that means.
1: Could you put us, in the, the skin so to speak of the average listener to, to this gospel about when it was written. Can you give a any kind of a reflection what their mindset was when they read this gospel? Did was their mindset like a filter that what wasn't taking it in or was their understanding of logos able to absorb you know really easily? I'm just trying to uh yeah
2: that's post- a great question. Great question. So for the Greeks, this is repulsive. Because for the Greeks, the truth emanates. You know, they, they can say this religiously, that the the uh, demiurges and John is clearly refuting that. But I think it's also going to be repulsive to the Jews. Because, of course, what he's saying is Jesus is the Tetragrammaton. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the great I Am. And by the way, there's, a, there's parallel theology between John and Hebrews. And that is that in times past, God has spoken to us in you know, many and various ways. But then in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. You know, John is continually echoing Old Testament scriptures. But the idea is, yeah, but now here's the reality Paul will say about Moses, which remember that when they're saying these things, sometimes it doesn't quite accord with our reading, you know, uh, that no one has ever seen God. Did the Jews actually, you know, what did they believe about what Moses saw? Well, they saw the trailings of God. They saw his glory passing. But in John, Jesus is going to say to Thomas, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. John is this hard proclamation that is really speaking both against Greek thought and Jewish thought, maybe in a different fashion. Uh, I think it is more Jewish. It is, a you know, that there is a kind of Jewish appeal here, but I think it's also knocking down. And of course, this is part of my understanding of what I think always happens with false teaching or a, a, a failed understanding is that, and this is not just me, this is the great insight in postmodern philosophical thought, what you get in somebody like Hegel, is that it's always a dialectic. You know, Hegel is supposedly summing up the history of human thought, and it's always this identity through difference. Well, that's Derrida. That's, you know, everybody's just saying the same thing. But I think that's Greek thought, in a sense, is Jewish thought. But of course, that's there in, in Genesis, that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's a dialectic, and the dialectic displaces knowing God. That is, you can know through the dialectic, through the opposed pairs, or you can know God. That is an understanding that it's going to challenge philosophically. The way in which this is challenging us, the way that we tend to think in a very Western linear fashion, this happened and then this happened and then this happened, Uh, there was creation and then, you know, before creation and then after creation, that's not the way Jews thought. And so in this sense, John is appealing that Jews may be more attuned to the understanding that John is giving us, and that is that what is taking place in John? He's retelling creation, right? Here is recreation. Here is cosmic recreation, that it is the fulfillment. It is the completion of creation. We could almost read this wrongly and imagine, well, this happened and then this happened, what John is saying is that the reality of who Christ is folds back to the beginning and to the end, and it's an all-encompassing reality. So when we talk about meeting God in Christ, not in the pre-incarnate Christ, but in the Christ that we meet in the Gospels, you know, Jesus Christ. This is, by the way, Tim, my problem with Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr says, "Well, we need, <laughs> we need to get rid of Jesus and focus on Christ." I, at least, in my limited understanding of Richard Rohr, the historical Jesus is not really filling us in as to who Christ is. So that here is this kind of uh, Scotus, you know, Dun Scotus or Occam, William of Occam, or a Franciscan reading in which they're picturing the logos in this pre-incarnate fashion. In other words, the reality of who Christ is, is not Jesus, but the reality of who Christ is, is in some way, this universal, disincarnate, you know, the word that John bear, that you'll, you asarkos, that not flesh. Uh, but wait a minute, here we have the enfleshed Christ. This is a little bit strange for us, I think. It's a little strange for me. You know, this certainly wasn't the way I was trained, that we encounter the fullness of who God is in Christ. You know, the the thing that Luther and Calvin, they're very eager to uh, affirm, is the hiddenness of God. You know, that little list there that you read, Jim, that nominalism, And I may be claiming too much here, but I'm claiming that the tenor of Western theology makes its departure in its reading of the Logos, and that this is a slowly accumulating thing, that there is a misreading of the Logos, that we're going to give priority to the pre-incarnate Christ over the incarnate Jesus. The focus
1: on an abstract atonement theory, the privileging of the law, the turn to nominalism, and the basic tenor of Western theology.
2: So, uh, what we get, you know, by eleven hundred, is Anselm's divine satisfaction. It's a it's a complete abstraction. It's the opposite of a Christus victory. You now, what are we what are we seeing in John? I think we're seeing the defeat of evil, that the light overcomes the darkness. Light life, life defeats death that in the, resurre- uh, in the crucifixion and resurrection, when we talk about the cross, you know, actually we should read, this is the story of Jesus. That's the summation, that's the height of it. But here is the summation of the gospel, and here is the defeat. Here is the point of glory. Here is the point in whom, you know, Jesus says, my hour has come, and when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And so the universality of the gospel is to f- be found in the cross, because this is the point in which Jesus' incarnation is complete. And that may be a kind of an odd way to put it, but I think that's the way the early church thought of it. I'm just starting to step back and see
1: some of my fuzzy thinking. So we had creation, and then we had the fall, and then, oh, we need a plan B. And so the Old Testament un- you know, unravels, and then Christ appears and the cross. I can't just toss that out of my brain. I just have to keep working at it and,
4: jesus know. was plan a because god had always planned to join humanity to his divinity that's what paul was saying it wasn't it paul in your, in your introduction in your first chapter is, is that the incarnation wasn't a plan b it wasn't a reaction it was it was always the plan for god to become incarnate because it was always god's plan to unite the human nature with the divine nature that's the interesting thing too about how the jews would have i think uh heard, you know, in the beginning was the word. Well, the Jews would have thought about Torah. You know, the Torah is the word. There's the 10 words of the Decalogue and things like that. And so for the word to become flesh, uh, right? That's like basically saying, oh, wait, what do you mean? Like the Old Testament became flesh? You know, the Torah became a person? Yeah. That's it. That's it. I mean, people like Origin of Alexandria, that's how they talk about the Old Testament is that Christ, he says, is incarnate in the scriptures so that god so that christ you know god is incarnate in christ you know historically that god is incarnate uh in christ in the scriptures so in other words like you can find christ in the scriptures he's incarnate he's there um he's in the sacrament of holy communion he's in our neighbor we I don't think that we're as used to to understanding things like that but i think that what paul was saying about the cross sort of being the middle of history christ in other words is filling the Old Testament, where he's veiled, you know. Saint Paul says that he says that the the law, you know, that a veil has been has been drawn over their eyes, and just like uh, in the flesh of Christ, there's a there's a veil. I mean, people only see him in the flesh, in the fleshly. They don't they don't see him as the Christ. They see him as just some guy, you know. But Christ says it's the same thing in the scriptures that people read the scriptures and they just see the letter, you know. They just see the word, uh, but they don't see the logos. They don't see Christ there. And so, you know, because you need Christ to truly have the gnosis, the Christian gnosis, right? Is is found in Christ. And so once you know that Jesus is is the Christ and once you know that you, you know Jesus is the word, then you can locate Jesus not only historically, but that you can locate Jesus in the Torah, in the Old Testament, in his people, in the sacraments. These are these are quite like, like the claims, right? These would have been shocking to to everybody, but I guess I'd, I'd like to, I'd prefer to think of it as rather than being like over and against a Jewish or a Greek understanding that Christ is fulfilling, he's filling those ideas with, with truth. You know, it's not that these guys had things in some ways like completely wrong. They were onto something, I think, in, in many in many ways, but that Christ fills these things out and, you know, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Nothing, not a jot or a tittle will... We'll, Everything will be fulfilled, you know, uh, in the law. These are wonderful things. I think that that were these are mysteries that we're trying to to probe, but that ultimately I think Saint John is saying, yeah, and, and the mystery that we're all trying to peer into has come in the flesh,
2: and I think that's key. Truth is a person, which changes up everything, because for the you know for the Greeks, you know, this is Pilate's question. Nietzsche says, "Ah, look." Look, uh, Pilate ruined it for everybody. You know, what is truth? is is the key question. His is the skeptical question, you know, well, what is truth? And the, that's actually a fairly common Greek notion that you really can't grasp the truth. But of course, what, what is being said here is that the answer to Pilate's question was Jesus is the truth, meaning that truth is something, it's not propositional. That doesn't mean that we do away with proposition. There's a proposition element about to all of us. Once we abstract the truth, this is what I think happens with the pre-incarnate Christ, that we're going to make the truth of Christ a kind of uh, abstraction, and then we're going to focus on doctrine, that we're going to focus on propositions. I'm not anti-propositional. I'm just saying that's not the nature of truth in the New Testament. Christ, Jesus is the truth. There are certainly things that we can say about Jesus as the truth, but a truth that is personal, that is a person, is going to be very different than impersonal propositional truths. And unfortunately, I think the Christianity that we've all kind of been weaned on is a propositional Christianity. Believe these things. Do you adhere to these doctrines? And if you adhere, you acknowledge, you say yes, then you're a Christian. Uh, I think that kind of misses it. And here, by the end of this class, or I think that entering into what John is doing for us, we're going to actually begin to think of truth, apprehending, experiencing, that this is something we have access to, you know, with the abstractions, nominalism, apologetics, uh, you know, that oh, we will prove it through various modes of reason. All of those are an abstraction from the person of Christ. So I think that that then gives you a very different experience of Christianity, that we actually enter into the life of the Trinity. We enter into the life of God, you know, as they say in the Eastern Church, divinization or theosis, that we can actually participate. And that's the great high priestly prayer in John, you know, that may they be one as we are one that this experience of the Holy Spirit is going to put us in the place of Christ in the Trinity toward the Father. Uh, there is a an unfolding of a different reality that I'm afraid is closed off to us as long as we are stuck on this kind of abstraction of Christ or the Logos. I'm not saying that's completely closed to them, but unfortunately I'm afraid that the reality God's good creation, God, the reality of who God is. It is. Yeah, actually, this is Irenaeus says this very early on. I was fi- surprised to see this. You know, you can do this with the word, but you, he also says you can do it with light and with, with life. In other words, if you abstract those from Jesus, then you've just you've done the same thing. And of course, the point is the word, the life, the light. That is Jesus Christ. That is that his, the historical person. That life itself, in the way that Christ gives it, is an experience. Is an entry into the life of God. That's a beautiful thought. That's a beautiful experience that opens up to us. I'm acknowledging it's a mist, a mystery. You know, there is a mysterious element to it. But I think that we have to acknowledge the goodness and truth of God that is made made available to us that unfortunately it falls short if we get this opening to John wrong.
7: Paul, when you were when you introduced the class, I think I told you on the phone the other day that I, I could not really feel or acknowledge that cosmic dualism being the starting point. You were raising the question, is John speaking you know about a, a dualism that was there from before creation was evil present you were using the word evil is was evil actually pre-existent or was he speaking against that you, you know and you explained it and I sat with that and thought about it and i and I, I said I don't think I ever really struggled with that sort of Manichaean good and evil out. although I can you know, look and see that that's a real tendency like to set up dualisms and say that we have to keep a perfect balance in order whether it's law or whatever you call it that this is what brings salvation it really sunk in when i read this part of what what you uh, assigned for the for the week the false narrative part the mystery of god revealed as trinity does not unfold from a fleshless heavenly realm according to bear there has been a serious departure as the subject of Christian theology has changed from Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord proclaimed by the gospel to the narrative of the word of God, somehow devoid of the content of the gospel. This false narrative pictures an unfolding consecutive order occurring in God. The pre-incarnate word descends to put on flesh something like a space suit and it is this embodied word that is the secret behind the life of the Messiah. And that right there, I could identify with that. Like up to this week, I think I would have read, I could have read the first, the prologue to the Gospel of John and thought about the pre existent Christ is something other than Jesus in the flesh. Yeah, you know, it, that you even have this picture of uh, of Jesus sitting next to the Father in the clouds up there and being sent at the right time, you know. But that kind of clouds the reality of what John is pointing to as the logos made flesh. It seems to me like maybe John was saying something by using that word from the very beginning, something that would appeal to the Greeks and also get the attention of the uh, Jewish community, and then, like you said,
1: offend them both, (laughs) and also have it revealed, the truth of what... I can't help but think of a couple comedians. They use the same language everyone understands, and they both offend people, but open their minds at the same time.
2: Bear makes the point that it is the point at which, which Christian theology begins. And I think it's there, Jim, and, and what you're saying, because here is the foundation of, you know, it is a theological understanding, not because John was not an eyewitness, but precisely because he was an eyewitness. He was a Jewish eyewitness. He's read the other Gospels. We think he had access to the other Gospels, and he's filling in then what he f- they didn't fill in. It is an offense. It is, you know, as Paul will say, a stumbling block because it it goes against the grain of human thought. And if we don't feel that in the beginning of this, we may not be getting it because I think it is over and against the way we're used to thinking that Jesus, as I put it, but actually I'm riffing out, oh, Bear, John Bear puts it, the cross is an eternal fact about God. I think you could just stretch that out and say, Jesus is an eternal fact about God. There is no time in God's experience. So to talk about before and after this kind of understanding is, you know, that's natural for us to do that, but it to impose that on the gospel is going to miss this eternality of God that we encounter in Christ
7: I've really been impressed by the apocalyptic summary of this of this gospel and and really of, of the gospel itself the message a, summer, a summation of, of eternity past eternity future if you want to just look talk about it that way it's it's one event like to say that the, the creation and the incarnation and the resurrection and ascension is all one event there's not like this like the consecutive order of things and i I get the sort of historical perspective but this is the apocalyptic perspective i like your the way you said it was that god has no story but that of jesus
3: of nazareth yeah that's that's quite a provocative statement i think that's really good and can you flesh that out a bit for us paul god has what john in the new testament are conveying is god has no story but that of jesus of nazareth and to me it's kind of like you know when you go to a movie or you read a novel where they use the um, um, in medias res, it means into the middle of things. You know, you see the story and it starts out in a courtroom case, but it actually then they go back 20 years earlier and then it kind of... So I think that's really key is this idea of starting with Jesus. We've talked about this in many of the other classes. We start with Genesis, we get God off the ground, and by the time we get to Jesus, we have to fit Jesus into all of these categories of what we've already got. So God's violent, Jesus is violent, God's this, you know... So can you expand on that?
2: Well, I I should first of all point out, this is not my original idea. This is, it's there in the Archbishop of Canterbury. Rowan Williams. Uh, Rowan Williams has said a a very similar statement and John Bear has picked this up, but it's also there in McCabe. McCabe picked it up. It's there in uh,
4: Robert Jensen,
2: Robert Jensen. Has, has said a very similar thing. and Robert Jensen's theology, this is kind of his point of departure. Well, I think they're all picking up on something that was there in the early church. In other words, you go back and you read Irenaeus or Origen, or they're, they're all recognizing that, as John Bear has put it, that there is no pre-incarnate Christ in the early church fathers. And so what they're getting at is the story of God that we have access to. The story of God is the story of Jesus. The way that this has been undone, I'm afraid, you know, we've got a whole discussion about the economic trinity divided from the imminent trinity. Well, then well, this understanding, well, the economic trinity is the imminent trinity. In other words, we don't need that divine, or we have the division within God and that we can talk about, you know, the divisions in the Trinity. And this is Jensen's point, that they've, they've abstracted language about God in order to just talk about the processions of the Trinity. And the reality is that the, the processions of the Trinity is something that we witness in Jesus. In other words, here is the procession of the Trinity. Here is who God is. Here is the imminent trinity. That's going to undo a lot of theological conversation. And so to begin to, to recognize that this is first-order experience, that, you know, this was Augustine, you know, somebody asked him, well, what was God doing before he began to create? And he said, well, he was creating hell for people who ask foolish questions. But it is a foolish question. There is no before. You know, the beginning here is not that sort of beginning. If we're reading it, oh, that we could go back before the beginning. No, this is absolute. It is the source of all things. Nothing has been made that has been made. And Brian, maybe that's the failure in that piece I did on, you know, equating nothingness and evil. But you understand that any notion of being able to go back before the beginning, you know, this is part of the Kalam cosmological argument that I was saying, well, actually you run into the same problem in the Kalam cosmological argument. This is Western apologetics is built upon this notion of a a kind of abstraction of God, but you're going to run into the same problem. Oh, at what point did God choose to do something different? You're changing up who God is in this. You know, this is McCabe and Jensen. They're not in any way relinquishing A notion that God does not reduce to Jesus, but, you know, this, I don't know if you all remember the open theology debate. I think that that debate partly arises from the same thing, and this is what maybe McCabe and Jensen both take this on, Jensen especially. He says, well, of course God suffers, because we see him suffering in Christ. We see him suffering in Jesus. We see God in Christ. That is not to take away from the doctrine of God as we have it, but it's just to say that the access that we have to God is in and through Jesus Christ. And so I think that's the point, that God is completely open to us, who he is. And that's what I meant, Matt, by the idea of God's essence. I wasn't using that in a technical term that who God is is continually unfolding for us. The reality of who God is continually unfolds for us. Not that we grasp everything about God or not that God isn't also transcendent, but we only have access to who God is in and through Jesus Christ. What happens once we go to the pre-incarnate Christ, then we also talk about the processions of the Trinity. We talk about the person of God Abstracted from Jesus, and that's just in, in a sense it's sub-Christian. That's what I meant, Tim. I don't know if that fills it in. It it is a kind of paradigm shift because we are so linear. It's our whole concern in reading the Gospels, oh well, we we have to harmonize it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with harmonizing, it, but that was not really the concern of the gospel writers. They're doing theology. And so John's not worried, oh, yeah, I've got the te- cleansing of the temple up front here. He's filling in theologically. You know, is are there two cleansings? I don't think they were worried about that. That's not the way that they were thinking. But that's the way we tend to think. And there was a little bit of that, even in the early church, that they're going to do a bit of harmonizing. You know, that's become the project in a fundamentalist or even in a in a liberal Christianity, is to disharmonize them. You know, say, well, this contradicts this, and so. uh, But no, they're writing texts that are talking about meaningfulness, and to talk about meaningfulness is going to go beyond mere historical, you know, a recounting of the history. And so it coheres. My point with the Bible in that first lecture This is the only way this book coheres. This is the only way it's constituted a book. I really think this is the way Scripture is constituted Scripture. You know, the Jews were waiting for the unveiling of their Scriptures. You know, this is Paul's point. It's veiled to them, and it really was. I think that they did it necessarily, and that wasn't necessarily offensive to them, because they were waiting for the Messiah. And so there is this unveiling, and that's the apocalyptic aspect to it, that it unveils everything all at once, and now we can go back and read creation through John, and read John through creation, that this was always God's purpose in creation.
0: Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship.